the important thing about the evolution of the podcast was what your compatriot and my compatriot, Alan Sippenwall, said. He now writes for Rolling Stone. Mm -hmm. Alan does? Yep. He wrote an article about our podcast, and he called it The Serialized Man. And I thought, wow, that is what we have done. We have taken what was going to be a gossip column about show business, and it has become a living experiment of a human life taken warts and all, good, bad, whatever, first loves, first heartbreaks, enormous successes, crushing defeats. And if you tell those stories truthfully, people will respond. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast about film, television, art, and culture. I am David Chen, and today I'm going to be speaking with actor Stephen Tobolowsky. I've been working with Stephen Tobolowsky for a little over 11 years on a podcast called The Tobolowsky Files, which you can find at tobolowskyfiles.com. He tells stories about his life. Uh, it's stories about life, love, and Hollywood. Stephen is one of the most brilliant, talented raconteurs I know, and uh, that's on top of him being an extremely well-regarded and very in-demand actor who's appeared in over 200 TV shows and films. For this season of The Tobolowski Files, we also have a YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Tobofiles. I would strongly suggest you go check that out. We spent a lot of time filming uh, his stories in front of a live audience in the pre-COVID era, uh, and some of his stories are just really, really brilliant and work really well in front of an audience. So check that out at youtube.com slash Tobofiles. I had a great time talking with Steven. You know, usually the podcast is him telling stories for the entire time, but, uh, you know, we had kind of a more back and forth during this interview. I had a great time talking with him just about his life as an actor and hearing him reflect on his successes and some of the more challenging things, as well as what his life is like right now in the pandemic, what his outlook is like, given that the pandemic has had a pretty terrible effect on Hollywood and production in general. I always enjoy talking with Steven. Uh, I consider him a very close friend at this point, and I hope that you appreciate this conversation as one that's a little bit more casual than some of my other ones, um, but still hopefully very fascinating and interesting. This podcast and a lot of my online work is made possible by my patrons at patreon.com slash Dave Chen. Thanks so much to everyone there for contributing and making Culturally Relevant possible. Uh, and if you want to reach this podcast, just head over to culturallyrelevantshow.com and email me at culturallyrelevantshow at gmail.com. You can also follow this podcast at crevshow, that's C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W on Twitter. All right, here's my conversation with a man who's played characters such as Ned Ryerson in Groundhog Day, Stu Beggs in Californication, Sammy Jenkins in Memento, and Dr. Berkowitz in One Day at a Time, Stephen Tobolowsky. And stick around for weekly recommendations afterwards. Stephen Tobolowski, welcome to Culturally Relevant. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing pretty good. I, I had a different morning than usual. Uh, have a new ritual in the morning. The ritual usually is I'm up before daylight and I have coffee and look at the weather to see how much above 100 degrees it'll be around my home and how much smoke from the fires will be. But now my wife and I, Anne and I, have coffee and cats in the morning. Mm. We stay away from the television. We stay away from computers. We take our coffee into the room and sit on the floor and pet cats. 
and in the age of the pandemic, I I would offer this suggestion to about anyone. If you don't have a cat, get one. And if you don't drink coffee, start. And uh, <laughs> it'll get you through this horrible period of history. Stephen, I've been doing this podcast, Culturally Relevant, for a little over a year. And I usually start by asking folks what their breaking in story was. Uh, how do they break into the industry? You've already covered this on our podcast, The Tobolowski Files, but for old time's sake, Stephen, tell me that story again. How do you think you broke into the industry? How do you define breaking in and how do you define the industry? You, well, you, yeah, yeah. I, it's, a good, it's a good question. I guess like when did you first feel like you became an actor? You know, like you could, that, that acting, you could confidently say it was your profession. Oh, gosh. Last Wednesday, <laughs> I finished the Goldbergs. I did. I did an episode of the Gold. I'll tell you, that is a great and profound question because it shows us that we never. I think in this profession, we never really feel we have arrived. I knew. I knew when people started recognizing me at the symphony uh, for work I have done. That I was, and that was usually for Deadwood and for Memento. Uh, I knew that in a way I had arrived, certainly after Groundhog Day, and people would come up to me at Gelson's and go, Bing, has anyone ever done that to you before? I knew I'd <laughs> sort of arrived. But now, because of Silicon Valley and One Day at a Time and our podcast, David, people recognize me at Ralph's. And if people who are within earshot of this don't understand the cultural difference between, between Gelson's, Gelson's and Ralph's, and Ralph's it's, <laughs> it's, it's huge. It's, it's like, uh, you know, the difference between dining at the Ritz and dining at Piggly Wiggly. It's, it's a huge difference. It's, and, it's, interesting. it's interesting that like in all of your examples that you gave just now, they're not about the work, right? They're all about re getting recognized for the work. And I think it, it points to the fact that a lot of times when you're going to be in something, like when you appear in a movie or a show, you have zero idea what its cultural impact will be, right? Absolutely. At the time you're making it. When we, when we were shooting Groundhog Day, at the beginning we thought, oh, this is going to be a Bill Murray comedy. You know, Bill without consequences, being wild and crazy. That was much the rage at the time, and it would have been successful, I'm sure. We had no idea it was going to become the new Wizard of Oz that would be shown every February 2nd on televisions everywhere. We, we had no idea. I think there have been moments which I thought I have arrived quickly followed by moments in which I felt like I have gone into the trapdoor to hell and will never be seen again. So it, in show business, you, you've never really made it and, and stay at that place. It, because show business is always looking for the next new thing. At the same time, they're looking for places uh, for the shallow graves along the roadside. You know, where where to bury this past incarnation of what we were looking for. 
I had one moment I'm thinking of now that I've never mentioned on a podcast or anything in which I felt I had arrived. And I had just done uh, an episode of Blue Skies. Have we ever talked about that on the Tobolowsky Files? Blue it's, Skies? It's possible. I don't, I don't recall it. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a TV show. That, Let me look it up. Blue Skies is an American drama series created by Carol and Nigel uh, Evan McKeon that aired on CBS in 1988. Uh, it's about a divorced ad executive who moves to Oregon with his new wife and blended family to run a sawmill. And that's absolutely incorrect. See, that's one thing. <laughs> you know, there's so many different shows called Blue Skies. This was a comedy. This was a comedy that had the distinction of becoming its own replacement. We did something like eight shows of Blue Skies. I apologize. This is the Blue Skies 1994 ABC comedy. There we go. In which two guys operate the Blue Skies trading company, a mail order business in Boston. Yes, that is... I'm so poorly prepared for this interview, Stephen. It's very shameful. No, it's okay. No, but this this was a moment in history. We did... We all believed in this show. We all loved this show. Uh, we did about eight of them, or pro- I think eight of them, and the show was canceled. And Barry Kemp was our executive producer who did Coach. You know, he had a lot of big hits. And so Barry made our show, in a way, <laughs> its own replacement. And then we did Whole New Ball Game. And we brought in Corbin Burnson, and we did a completely new show with basically the same cast. <laughs> we we switched out a few people, but then it became a show about a TV station, and Corbin was a sports star who was brought in to be uh, the sports announcer or whatever in the newsroom. And I pl- think I played. I wasn't the weatherman. I was. I was. Maybe I was the weatherman. I. I can't remember. Anyway, uh, on, point, on on Blue Skies, you were Oak, and I was on Oak. on a whole new ball game. You were Doctor Warner Bakerfield. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> who is, gives a shit? Who gives a shit? So we, we finished the first Blue Skies, and the audience was howling with laughter. And we finished shooting and doing our pickups. Back in the old days, you would shoot in front of the live audience, probably do two takes. Then the live audience would go, and you would probably shoot the whole show again, or what you call pickups, and you would finish somewhere close to midnight. And it was close to midnight. And they opened the big studio stage doors and we were all leaving to go to our cars and go home. And it was one of the first roles I had as a regular. Maybe Dweebs was the first I did as a regular. One of those two shows was the first regular part I had in a comedy. And I was walking out those doors to my car. And I thought... I had arrived, little knowing that in a mere 10 weeks, <laughs> we would be canceled, little knowing that in another 12 weeks, <laughs> we would be doing a completely new show in the same stage with a different set, with a different name. And we would with the, have, but there were the same actors and the same, same actors, and, everything. Yeah. and we would have arrived again. And, and so... <laughs> Show business is a very strange thing this way. And after that happens to you a bunch of times, after you go up and down the elevator, 
I became very sensitive. Uh, I think you and I both have been plagued with ear infections in our life, sinus infections. Mm. Uh, uh, one of the things I noticed about my sinus infections, David, and we can talk about this in, off the air too, if you mm -hmm. want. I'd love it, to. It, <laughs> is the sensitivity it gives you to altitude, uh, taking off in planes, landing. I got to the point where just taking the elevator in Walt Disney Studios to do an audition would get me airsick. Uh, that is the way this business is. You, you get the ups and downs. After a while, you just let it go. Mm. Uh how did you get that job on Blue Skies, by the way? Like, how you know, what, what was the state of your career at, at that point? At that point, I had become the bald guy with glasses that did Groundhog Day. Mm. So it was right after Groundhog Day. And in this business, a lot of people are willing to trade down. So, <laughs> you, I mean, it's the natural state of things. So you've done a movie, Groundhog Day. We didn't know it was a classic yet, but we knew it was a successful movie. And then someone comes along and they want you in their TV sitcom, which in terms of show business real estate yeah. is a trade down. Yeah, pre like prestige-wise, for uh, most people don't know, but for much of the last you know hundred years. Um, TV was considered a downgrade from uh, from cinema, which was considered very prestigious. Now, uh, obviously, cinemas aren't even open, but even when they were, most of the interesting stories were getting told on TV, right? Um, with but, with uh, the Netflix series and all yeah, those the things. Netflix series and FX and you know uh, Amazon Prime, all these things, right? But yeah, for for most of the last you know century, uh, it was. Movies that were the big thing. So you got offered the sitcom and you didn't say to them, hey, what are you talking about? I'm a movie star now, baby. Uh, no, what was I behind said, that I'll decision? take it. <laughs> I, went in, I went in and auditioned and everybody loved it. And then I went in and did a network audition and everybody loved it. And I got the phone call, you're in. It was one of the simplest casting procedures I ever, I ever had, I ever went through. And... So I was thrilled that I had this regular job because also show business will eat your own. It's, it's like when you do a role like Ned and Groundhog Day, there are other producers that say, let's get that guy doing the same sort of thing in a different kind of movie that's where he could kind of do the same thing since that works. So they would cannibalize Ned anyway. If, if I didn't do that, I remember um, the guy who played Howard on the Andy Griffith show. Were you a big Andy Griffith fan? You know, I can't say I was. I can't say I was. Yeah, Howard Howard was after Barney left. You know, after Barney Fife left, it was hard for all of us. But Barney was making the the climb from Andy Griffith into movies. He was going the other way. Because he had won something like five Emmys in a row. They were calling it the Don Knotts Award or whatever. So Don Knotts was looking for bluer skies. And, oh, we just touched on blue skies again. But it, it so they kept full circle. Full so circle. they were looking for other people to fill that void. And you had uh, Gomer Pyle and, you, you, you know, jo George Lindsay, I think, was on there. And then you had Howard, who who was the 
mild manner guy who, what, did he work at a drugstore? I forget what, but he was a comical character on The Andy Griffith Show for a while. Well, someone had advised him, you need to branch out. And I think it was on The Getaway. In The Getaway, the movie, Steve McQueen, I, I think that version of The Getaway, Ali McGraw. I'm, I'm really plumbing that memory now, David. I could really use a little help here. Uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. Yeah, so, but he plays, a. they had him play a guy that was so unhoward-like. You know, they had him stripped down into his underwear and then they hang him in his underwear. I mean, it was it was horrible. It, it was shameful. It was like you tar and feather Captain Kangaroo or something, or you make Captain Kangaroo some kind of sexual predator in a movie because mm. he wants a break out of the, image of being Captain Kangaroo. He wants to break out of that. So that show business would do that too. I was lucky in that I had Groundhog Day, which was a very special role in a very special movie, and people identified as comedy. I was able to milk that for a while (laughs) on network television, and then I get Memento, which is a completely different thing from Ned Ryerson. And it was spaced out enough to where it didn't appear I was cannibalizing myself. So that, that was a lucky move. You know, t- timing was just luck. Well, you're saying it like cannibalizing yourself is a bad thing, it sounds like. But in fact, like it seems like showing range as an actor is actually good. Um, but you're you, you're kind of framing it in in the getaway example as a negative. Well, it it usually ends up not working out too well for you. It, it, timing is important in the old days, David, when theater was king. They used to have repertory companies, and in those repertory companies, you had the grand dame and the grand mister who played the leads in the Moliere plays. And then you had the younger actors who played the lovers. And then you had the clowns. And within that group, in that repertory group, it was very common for the audience to want and expect and get all of the different characters, all the different actors in that repertory company playing so many different parts. Sometimes they would play a tiny part. Sometimes they'd play a lead, comedy, drama, all over the place. It was the golden age of an actor using his chops. But when, I guess, I want to say Broadway was where every actor wanted to be when I was in college. So that's in the 1970s, early 1970s. Broadway was where you had to be. Film was looked down upon. Mm. Film was not king. Film was looked down upon as, I remember... I want to be a legitimate actor for the legitimate stage, right? Not like film actor or Hollywood. And and the choice we were given in college is you, you got only two places to go, either New York to go to Broadway or California to do television and film. That's what it was like when I was in college. So now... Gosh, will theater ever come back? I don't know. And even before the pandemic, Broadway was in such a state that the only way really a Broadway show could get real traction is if you had a TV star in it. Uh, I remember David Duchovny, when we were doing 
uh, Californication. He said, Tobo, I'm doing this lead in a Broadway show. Help. You know, I haven't, I haven't done this kind of thing. Uh, you know, you know, what, what's it like? And, and I said, it's, (laughs) I said, you're, you're used to it because David Duchovny, I think I have mentioned to you in the past was probably one of the hardest working people I've ever known in my life in show business playing, uh, that role in Californication was exhausting. He was on it all the time. Every moment, he didn't have time to eat or sleep. Broadway is like that too. It's exhausting. So I figured he would do well in it. But yeah, yeah, cannibalization, David, people are looking for something that will sell. And yeah, you were going they're, to say. They're looking for something that like they recognize, basically. And yes. when you deviate too much from that, you disorient the audience, they find it off-putting and unpleasant, and they can often reject it. But I think you're saying that um, because you did Groundhog Day, this was a similar gig at Blue Sky, so you're like, oh, hey, why not? And then later on, you'd do things like Memento, but it was far enough away that it didn't feel like you were uh, going too far out of your uh, wheelhouse uh, because... It had been long enough. Since and I was a legitimate actor for the legitimate stage. I was born to be one of those repertory actors that could play small parts, big parts, funny parts, not funny parts. That's how I was trained. So I was lucky in that a, those kind of parts became available to me. Before we move on, I, by the way, I just want to call out the actor you're referring to is Jack Dodson, who played Howard in The Andy Griffith Show. He also played Harold Clinton in the Steve McQueen 1972 action film, The Getaway. So for those who were screaming at their podcast player just now uh, about who that was, uh, that's who it is. Thank you for that. Um, But Stephen, I was listening to this podcast recently that I recommended to you. I still think you should check it out. It's called Dead Eyes. Mm-hmm. Oh, and uh, oh. The, the the plot of the podcast is basically there's an actor right now. You may have even worked with him, by the way. Um, Connor Ratliff, I think is his name. Uh, but he is, is a working actor in Hollywood right now. And uh, he the, the, the podcast is about a moment, I think, like roughly a decade or two ago when he was almost hired to be in the HBO original series Band of Brothers. And there was an episode of that show that Tom Hanks was directing. And Tom Hanks had hired him and he's like, I've made it. Everything's going great. But then Tom Hanks, like through an agent, like an agent had repeated something to the actor that he wasn't supposed to. He had said like, hey, Tom Hanks needs to see you again. He's not sure you should have the part. He thinks you have dead eyes, which is not something an actor ever wants to hear because obviously that's going to make them super self-conscious about like, their eyes. What can you anyway, do about your eyes? What, you what can, can you do about your eyes? You can't make your eyes live. Anyway, so then he goes to see Tom Hanks, and Tom Hanks like has him read for the part again, and then Tom Hanks is like, sorry, we're going to go in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and this guy, this moment has kind of haunted him for the last you know, 15, 20 years, and he's, he's made this podcast about it, obviously, uh, where he tries to get to the bottom of it. And Listening to him talk about it has reminded me a lot about some of the ways that you talk about show business. And specifically, he was saying like it, it almost like when I hear him talk about it, it almost kind of broke something inside him that that could get that invested in something. Do you know what I'm saying? Like 
like he got so invested in the band of brothers and then it didn't work out that like he basically didn't allow himself to kind of love again you know like or, or to be like so you know what i mean i'm being i'm being very facetious like uh facetious and simplistic but it's like he he never got that invested in a role ever again it sounds like to you me, know w- right? when yeah. when we were having coffee and cats this morning my wife and i we were talking about we we were talking about the future of theater and with zoom theater and the pandemic and all this and how depressing it is and how long do we have to go before we realize, oh, theater is not going to come back probably within our lifetime. Maybe not, you know, maybe not within 10 years. Not that I'll be dead in 10 years, but I'm not going to be playing those rip-roaring roles I played in the past (laughs) in 10 years. So You're not going to be Hamlet in 10 years. You might be Hamlet's father. At what point do you become this kind of fool like old grandpa in the attic tinkering with the internal combustion engine that this one runs on water you know when, <laughs> <laughs> you know and you go like Graham stop it man you do, it's silly you know we don't we don't need that anymore and and I recall something I mentioned in an earlier podcast we had done a Tobo files way back when and that is Stanislavski said the key for an actor The number one thing an actor needs is not live eyes, but will. Stanislavski said will is the most important thing an actor needs is to get up and do it. And what happened in the Tom Hanks live eyes situation is his will was injured, was shattered. And it's very hard to get up again when you feel that there is something intrinsically wrong with you. That no matter what happens when you get to the finish line, you you will be discarded. It's hard to stand up and begin again. That's the hardest. That's in in this inhale exhale of show business. It's very difficult to get the courage or the foolishness to stand up again and say, "Well, I'm going to try again." I I. I could talk to you about a horrible experience that we never really talked about on the podcast or anything, but it was a show that I was fired from in essence or written off of. And that was the Mindy project. I was going to say the Mindy project, like, you know, I've known you Stephen at this point for 11 years. And in that time, you know, obviously you worked for decades before that, but in the time that I've known you, it seemed like the Mindy project was probably that, like losing that gig was probably one of the things you took hardest from my recollection. It was a killer. And, but, but I, anytime you're written off of a show or fired and it happens a lot and then you'll get rehired down the line, hopefully, but it injures your soul. It injures your will. But, but the way it happened was particularly gruesome for me in, in, in a kind of spiritual way in that we had shot like, Two or three shows. They you, like, like, like you were supposed to be a regular on yeah. the Mindy Project, which at the time I think was on Fox, right? It hadn't made the move to Hulu yet. That is correct. Um, yeah. So you were supposed to be a regular. I and was really excited for you because it's you have rarely been a regular in a TV series before, um, uh, as far as I can recall. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Well, you know, that that, we had Blue Skies, but we all know what happened to Blue Skies. <laughs> it became a whole new ball game. I was in Dweebs. 
Uh, but but it was very funny because my manager was saying when one day at a time happened, he said, I can't believe you've been in show business for decades. And this is the one real regular role you've ever had in a comedy. And I had to remind him about Blue Skies and a whole new ballgame. But it's true. <laughs> it, it, it's, would... it's, it's rare. And most people don't know about Blue Skies and a whole new ballgame today, but they do know about the mini project. That is so, correct. Yeah. So anyway, I we had shot like two or three episodes and they were editing the episodes. Uh, and I went back to Dallas on our week off. So I guess we must have done maybe three of the shows. And I went back to Dallas to visit with my dad on week off. And I get a call from the production office of the Mindy Project. They said, oh, Stephen, uh, when are you planning on coming back? And it wasn't the joke. You could stay in Dallas, Stephen. Good news. You could stay. No, it wasn't that. When you come back, uh, we we need to do some pickups from some of the earlier, earlier episodes. And I go, oh, great. Yeah, no problem. So I came back and the, quote, pickups, the pickups we did where we redid a scene in which I had several speeches with a lot of jokes and we cut those speeches out. They weren't really pickups. They were deletions. And <laughs> and I was going like, uh, oh, okay, okay. And I remember I called my manager and I said like, well, this is weird. We, But nobody, nobody was frowning at me. Everybody was patting me on the back, smiling. Oh, this is great. Yeah, this is great. This is terrific. But this is when it came down. This is when it happened. Uh, we usually had a network run through uh, uh, where, where we read the new script, probably like around noontime. I forget which day it was on. I'll, I'll say on like a Friday or something. And we were going to start shooting on Monday for the new episode. And it was standard. We're going to meet in the conference room. All the network people are going to go there, have lunch, hear the new script. I go over to the studio right on schedule. Food is up there. Not a soul is in the room. Not a soul. I walk in to a room that should have 50 network people and all the cast of the Mindy show. I walk in and the whole place is empty. Then an AD comes in and he sees me and he freezes. And he goes, oh, hi, Stephen. Um, Oh, you know, while you're here, if you could sign maybe some posters downstairs that we're selling to charity, uh, that we're giving away to charity for them to, you know, make. I go, well, well, sure, sure. What, what about the reading? Oh, oh, they'll talk to you about that later. They'll talk. Yeah, the the reading was changed. They're doing a rewrite, and uh, and I went, okay. Well, I guess no one told me. I come downstairs, walk to the kind of green room where they have the posters laid out. And one of the writers, one of the youngest writers on the show, walks out and sees me. And it's like he saw a raccoon in the middle of the night at his door. He he sees me, his eyes are like, oh, what is he doing here? Is what his eyes said in a fraction of a second. No one said a word to me. What I knew was the empty room where we were to have the read-through, no one was there. And this young writer, the look of pity mixed with terror of having 
walked in, somebody knew something that I didn't know. <clears throat> I went in and signed the posters. I went home, and I had no idea what was going on. I couldn't find out from anybody what was going on, but I had Mindy's cell phone. So rather than doing what they do in Hollywood, like call my agent, call my manager, everybody does everything in second and third, I call Mindy up on the phone. And she's in a meeting with several people, and she's kind of on speakerphone, I could hear. And I go, uh, Mindy, uh, I didn't really know what, what's going Oh, Stephen. I'm sure they probably told you now that we're going a different way with the show and we're writing you out of the show. Pause as my heart and soul and will drain out into the ground. And I go, no, Mindy, no one has ever told me. You're the first one to tell me now. Oh, oh, well, we're going in a different direction and that's what's going on. And I want to tell you, Stephen, this is so horrible for me. This is this was a terrible decision for me. And and I suddenly Mindy is very upset. Uh and I'm thinking like, oh wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't know if I have the energy to be gracious right now. Uh and comfort Mindy for feeling so badly because I still feel like I'm being swallowed by the earth. Yeah. Uh you're fresh out of I'm, that I'm, emotional labor. I have dead eyes at this point. And so, <laughs> and so I, I thank her and I, I say, thank you for the opportunity. No, I don't know anything about this. Uh, I'll talk to my manager and I'm sure they'll clear everything up. And the last episode I did on the Mindy Project, they had cut me down to being a voiceover on a phone answering machine to where I, I go in and go, I where uh, I, quote, lose my mind as the old doctor in the group, and I've run off to some someplace, and they just wanted me to record for my last show that I was going to do that I had left for Tahos, New Mexico, or wherever. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm gone, which, which I thought was jumping the shark very early for the show. A L- little bit humiliating, a little bit humiliating. But, but it came back in that, how many years later? David, when did we do me doing the uh, Nicki Minaj? Uh, <laughs> when, when was that when we did that? Um, yeah. So for, for those who are curious what Stephen's talking about, uh, Stephen did an interpretation of Nicki Minaj's Anaconda uh, that was on YouTube. And that was in 2015. You did a kind of... Interpretation of what Anaconda was about, basically. 2015. So the Mindy show had been on the air at that point, what, three years, four years? I don't know. It, yep. had, been, it had been on a while. I was only in marginally the first seven shows before they fired me and, and threw me out. So we're shooting Anaconda, and I get a call from my manager, Mindy. They want to have me do a flashback episode. Mm. Would, would I be willing to come back and do the flashback of me as the doctor? And I and my manager going, Stephen, I know how how hurtful that was. You had dead eyes for a long time after the Mindy Project. You know, you don't have to do this. I'll just tell them. I said, no, no, I'll do it. Tell them, yeah, 
I'll be happy to do it. I'll be happy to do it. And I was happy to do it. I went back to LA. I shot another Mindy project and it was delightful. It was delightful to see Mindy again. It was delightful to see the remaining members of the cast again after so long. Uh, and we shot and the scene was very funny. And then Mindy came up to me at the very end and hugged me and said, thank you for doing this. And then she whispered to me, I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> and <laughs> it was, it was brutal. And it's a situation like it was, it was, it was the silence of it all that was so crushing to me going to the network read through when no one was there. Right. What, what was up with that? Do you think people like deceived you or like the plan changed? It sounds like the plan changed and no one told you about it. Basically. Well, yes. It's like when you work on a network show, there are many, 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 many people who are involved with different tasks and the right hand doesn't know what the left foot is doing. Like on the Goldbergs, you, you have, someone who does the schedule and another person who calls. And then you have the writers that are doing rewrites and may, and other people that are finding locations for scene and not all the people are connected all at the same time. So everybody had put the gruesome task of telling me the bad news to someone else. And those people <laughs> never followed through. So I never got told uh, and fortunately, after the Mindy Project, I, I still had other shows that I was able to do, partly because I was still trading down from Groundhog Day. You know, I was still... <laughs> you've, you've been trading down from Groundhog Day continuously <laughs> for the last uh, couple decades, uh, and you've now reached this podcast, which is I, the lowest point ever. Would, um <laughs> Not quite yet, David. Not quite yet. <laughs> there's still there's still uh, ground left to cover. The um the there's a few things, so many things, uh, Stephen, that your story brings up. You know, kind of raises these issues in my head. Number one is, uh, yeah, the idea of will, right? Um, and and I think people see you as somebody who is a very successful actor who's been able to do it for so many years. Um, but they don't see the the failures as much. Or when they do see the failures, like even if the movie didn't do well, it's still in some way a success because you probably got paid to do it, right? Um, right. But they don't see this stuff, the stuff that you just talked about, which is like silent and no one like no one talks about it. Um, but you got you still have to pick yourself up and keep going. Another thing that uh that your story raises for me is like uh I get the sense, Stephen, that at this stage of your career, uh, I think the technical term is you give no fucks because uh, typically, you know, people wouldn't talk about this stuff publicly. Uh, you've written about this as well. You've talked in, in about interviews, this mini project experience. And people generally don't say stuff like this out like publicly because they want to maintain good relationships with people. Um, but you don't care about that. Like th this is probably like you shared you know, stories about working on films before. And even if you portray people as kind of quirky and idiosyncratic, it's never like these people did it in a really cruel and, and gruesome way. This is particularly cruel and gruesome, it sounds like. And so I'm curious, like, about, is it true that you give no fucks? Was there a time earlier in your career when you would 
uh, fear angering people uh, by talking out of, out of school, or were you always like this? I, I think I was always kind of like this in that I didn't understand the hammer coming down. I like, for example, in the in the Mindy Project uh, episode, really, Mindy was quite lovely. You know, she was wonderful to work with. She really knows her stuff. Nothing was done to intentionally be cruel to me. Uh, the the only problem was was a bureaucratic one, and that yeah. whoever was supposed to talk to me didn't talk to me. That's what created the situation where I ended up learning psychically that I was written off of the show by seeing the eyes of the youngest writer on the writing staff looking at a ghost at his door. Uh, it it wasn't it wasn't her fault. And 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 a, and another thing. This business is so difficult, and at the same time, it's so kind of non-essential, really. I mean, all people do is create entertainment, and I know my son, he'd rather play a video game than to watch (laughs) The Deer Hunter now or something, you know? (laughs) You don't say. say, (laughs) There's no difference in, in what we do for entertainment. And some people read books and they don't watch entertainment like TV anymore, anymore. Well, that, uh, that, was, the other, that was the other thing I was going to say, which is that you are like in in any other job, right? When you lose the job, it is often people consider it a very traumatic experience, yes. right? Um, people will often remember every detail about that day. Like when you got laid off, when you got called into the office, when they told you the news, like people will remember all that stuff for the rest of their lives. And if you are in show business, if you're lucky, you know, you have a a dozen of those kinds of conversations in a year, basically, Mm -hmm. right? Versus like once every decade or, or, you know, however long people work at their jobs right now. Um, and you're, and not only that, but you're expected, you can't kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's considered, I guess, like this is another thing that was covered in in that podcast, dead eyes about like how, like, if you are like desperate, when you go into the audition room, like they can sense it, you know what I mean? And it's like, it's, it comes off bad. And so you can't really like show emotion in a way that you could even in a normal desk job, like a normal desk job, people cry and they go out to happy hour afterwards and stuff like that. And it's like, it's tough to do that because often you need to still put on a good face and maintain good relationships with people as you described in your story. Right. Yeah. I, I, I mentioned this at one time. It may be in a podcast. It may not be, but it was a Satori it was the veil being lifted and i went damn and that was i i was called in for a network callback a network audition which is if people don't know you you do the audition with the casting director if you pass that you usually do an audition for the producers after that and then usually you have a third audition with the network and that's what you that's the big one and that's an audition where you're not auditioning for one. There's 50 people there and 45 of them get coffee for the five. You know, the 45 people are, but you're there suddenly auditioning your little audition for a huge room full of people. And it's all filmed. It's, it's terrifying in a way. You have to prepare mentally for it if you don't really 
know what you're walking into. So I was going to Fox to a network audition and I got the time wrong. I got the time wrong. I ended up there an hour and a half early. So I walk into the audition room, which is empty, and it has all the chairs and everything for the audience to be watching. They have the table uh, in front of that audience where you have the executive producers, where they're watching you. And then they have the chair for the reader with the camera and the chair for me on the other end, looking at this room of empty chairs. And walking into the room, I felt sick. Walking into the empty room, something about the shape of the room made me ill. And I thought, what is it? See, it's not the people that do it. It's the way the room looks. And I thought, what could make this feel better for me? And what I did was I grabbed my chair, my audition chair, and I took it and I moved it behind the big table. So I was sitting at the big table with the executive producers, and the little camera was pointed at nothing, and I was going to sit back with them. And I thought, that makes me feel better. Why? Because now I'm no longer being judged. Now I am a collaborator. So I put my chair back in front of the camera. And from that moment on, when I went in on auditions, I thought, I'm not coming in here to be judged. I'm coming in here to see what I can contribute to this project. Maybe it will be useful. Maybe it will not be useful. They will be the judges of that. But I can bring the best me I can bring today to say, this is what I can offer you. Um, in terms of Groundhog Day, uh, I had to read that with Harold Ramis, he, he did not have a reader uh, for a casting director and him sit back as the director. He said he wanted to read with the actor since he was an actor himself. He thought it would m make people feel more relaxed. And I said, yeah, but Harold, you're the guy who's hiring us. It, it doesn't make me feel more relaxed to do this. But I went in on that audition thinking like, what can I contribute to this project? And I heard later, uh, Harold, and I, we, we did um, a benefit for Danny Rubens, uh, he, who's the writer of Groundhog Day. He was living in New Mexico. For, uh, he, he does something for troubled teens out there, projects, art projects for them. And I said, what, what, what happened in my audition, Harold? that made you go like, this is the guy we can cast in Groundhog Day. And he said, I could tell you exactly. As soon as you left the room, I called Bill Murray on the phone. And I said, we found our Ned Ryerson. This guy is the most obnoxious person I've ever met in my life. So that was the gold I brought into the room for Groundhog Day, my obnoxiousness. And that may be part of the not give a fuck. Yeah, I was saying uh, at this point in your career, you give no fucks, but it sounds like maybe uh, back then that was already the case. I, well, I think so. And, and I make this, this distinction through our discussion. This business is difficult. The 
product we make is entertainment. But in creating that entertainment, it takes everything you have, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. You have to work very hard. And so sometimes people get their feelings hurt. Uh, Bad things happen, and you have to pick yourself up and dust yourself off and go on. That is different. Getting fired from the Mindy Show uh, or uh, having your feelings hurt by a director that doesn't like what you're doing and and disses you. All that hurts, but it's not the same as working with someone who's trying to destroy you. Like we've talked about from my college days, Joan Potter. Uh, Joan Potter in school, when she was in the podcast, we did um, conference hour. If people don't know that story. Listen to our Tobolowski Files conference hour. You'll you'll hear the whole story. Uh, that person was trying to not destroy my will. She was trying to eliminate me. She was trying to not kill me, but she was trying to not make me be an actor. She was trying to destroy that for sure. But also she was going the extra yard to see that I didn't graduate from college. What difference did it make to her if I got my degree and became a weatherman? No, but she wanted to make sure that I didn't graduate. That was evil. Now, here's a part of the story, David, you don't know. And since the theme of the pod, podcast season this season is untold stories, here's an untold story. So before the pandemic, I went to New York and was at the theater, and a man with white hair and a beard approached me, and it was John Tillotson, who went to SMU with me and was actually two years before me and was the star of Beth's for Beth Henley, her first play, Am I Blue? And he was magnificent in it. He was absolutely magnificent. I, I didn't recognize him now because now he looked like Santa Claus, and he met me in the lobby of the theater. Ann and I were going to a show. And he says, Stephen, I just listened to your podcast, uh, Conference Hour, and there's something I had to tell you. Joan Potter did the same thing to me two years later. I had no idea. I thought it was only me. But she did the same thing to me with the unsatisfactory critiques. She tried to keep me from graduating. And just like you, I won the Edith Renshaw Award for Outstanding Undergraduate Student in the Drama Department. I said, I cannot believe it, man. So it was her M.O. Now, I don't mind the give no fucks came from confronting an existential enemy in my life when I was 19 years old. 19 And for three years, I had to battle this person, a grown-up with power. And that beat the fucks out of me. (laughs) At that point, you're like, if you you can beat this person that's trying to, in some ways, uh, not destroy your life, but at least like negatively alter the course of it. um, Well, that was... You could do anything at that point. Yeah, yeah. You know, she who, was. Who cares about the junior writers of the mini project, right? Right. <laughs> you know, but but what I'm saying, the, working on the mini project, those people had a hard job to do. 
And they have to satisfy the writers, the producers, the studio, the network. And if anywhere along that line, the people go like, this guy, this Stephen Tobolowsky, he's not working, you know, in this part. This part just doesn't work. Maybe let's change the change the part, get rid of the part, whatever. To be on the air, they will go, yes, we'll do that. They're not thinking of whether they hurt me or not. That's They didn't choose this profession for me. And in every profession, there is something that's going to hurt. And you put yourself at the line. Maybe I, I remember my sister was, was saying that, oh, Stephen, you always put yourself out there. You, you took more chances than anyone. My sister went into academia, became a professor, and my jaw drops when she says that to me because there is nothing more dangerous or backbiting or crazy-making than being in academia. There, you have no recourse. You have people with absolute power, those deans and heads of departments, that can destroy your life. And it's worse than show business. It's, it's, it's a delusion to think that becoming a teacher of some sort is safer than following your dream and becoming an artist or, or whatever. It's completely dangerous. Nothing about it is safe. Uh, so I would say as things go, being in show business ain't so bad. (laughs) Fair enough, Stephen. Um, let's talk a little bit about the podcast real quick. And then I want to ask you about, uh, your experience during the pandemic. So just briefly, you know, uh, cause you already have many more words to say about another podcast itself. But I mean, I, I think if you're listening to this. You're in, and you're in the group of people that listens to this podcast but doesn't listen to the Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, tell us about when you first started writing your stories. You know, you've told me the story before, but like, when did you first start writing, and like, why did you feel compelled to to write so much? I think it was yeah. when you had first broken your neck, right? Yeah, I was uh, horseback riding in Iceland and broke my neck. I came back to the United States and the doctor told me I had a fatal injury, which was really depressing. And so I'm in this brace, obviously it uh, wasn't fatal. And I thought I could have died on that mountain. I'm going to start writing some stories for my kids, my two kids, so they would know who their father was. Because when you have a broken neck, there's not a lot you could do but eat and write. And, and how, I, how old are your kids at that point? Let's see. So this is 2008. So 12 years ago. 12 years ago. So my twin. So they're teenagers. They were mm. teenagers. So I start writing little stories about when I fell in love with Alice Nell Allen, when I proposed to her when I was five, L- little stories about. Groundhog Day or little things. And then during this recovery, I was writing these stories as a method of recovery with the goal of doing it for my children. Uh, David Chen called me on the phone, called me directly on the phone. 
this guy I never heard of before. And, <laughs> and he was a student at Harvard, and uh, he liked the movie uh, Stephen Tobolowsky's Birthday Party, where I told stories. Great film, yeah. And he said to me, would you be interested in doing a podcast where you tell stories? And I had no idea what the word podcast meant. Or stories, even. No, I'm just joking. It's the first time I heard... Let me let me ask you this. So you said you wanted your kids to know their father. Did you feel like they didn't know? You know what I mean? Like, because I, I guess uh, I, I got to imagine being, you know, growing up in a household with you, you probably regale them with tales of, uh, you know, your life all the time is what I assumed. No, no, no. Because when you're, when you're a father, you're spending all the time, well, you read bedtime stories to them and you change diapers and you drive them to school and you tell them, do your damn homework. Don't do like last time. Read the book before you do the book report. No, don't smoke dope in the house. You know, do that on the street like other boys. Yes. You, you know, yes. you, you, can, do you have to play video games all the time? And that was just last week. And, <laughs> and so as a father, you end up being a disciplinarian and your wife and you, you switch off roles of being good cop and bad cop. Uh so I and they're not interested in the tales of your life. They feel you're a dullard. You, you're you're just old news. You're old saggy news. You know, get out of here because we're the new we're the new kids on the block. So children don't really care. In fact, out of all of this stuff, out of writing all these stories for my kids and those stories turning into two books. Uh, which one of which I dedicated to my two children, uh, the Dangerous Animals Club, second book I dedicated to Anne. The kids never listened to the podcast. They never read my <laughs> stories. They never read the book that was that never uh, until recently. That that was a real turnaround until recently. And now that they've heard the podcast with their girlfriends and or wives, they go like, "Well, Dad, which are the episodes that I'm in?" <laughs> <laughs> they want to hear those. But what happened was this David Chin character, he he was trying to break me in with the easy stuff, with doing film reviews. And I think we did something like Sucker Punch and Mummy 3. Like the mummy, the real- mummy 3, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor. Yeah. Yes, and and he w- he was giving me the good the good stuff to do, and and we talked about rescuers down under or or some other films like that on on his uh, slash film show, and I really enjoyed that. And then he said, "Well, why don't we record some of your stories and we'll put them out on the internet?" And since it was connected to slash film, the first three podcast stories I did were pretty much stories that were filmed. The idea was I'm the guy who's in all these little roles in all these little movies and TV shows, and I would be able to talk about backstage Hollywood, whatever. Well, the fourth episode, I get this call from Texas, and my mother had a heart attack. And so I go back to Dallas and I'm there with my mother the last day of her life. And so I start writing. And I write a podcast that we call The Alchemist. That's episode four. And I talked to this David Chin character and I said, David, I'm sorry. This next episode has nothing to do with show business. 
And he and he said, well, that's fine. Let's 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 do it. Let's do it anyway. So at that point, we were recording live. I would call David. Uh, that's you. I would call you, and I guess in Boston, or you weren't in Seattle yet, and you would record. You would record the podcast live. And after we recorded that episode for the Alchemist, you said, "Tobo, write whatever story you want. Don't worry about it being about show business." And so, as the podcast first stories evolved, there was a fair mix of me being a kid growing up in Oak Cliff, uh, s- school stories, stories with my neighborhood friends catching poisonous snakes and spiders and lizards, growing up wild, and show business stories. And that was kind of how the Tobolowski Files was evolving. And uh, you said, why don't we call stories of life, love, and Hollywood? And the key was they were true stories because I learned along the way in my life, earlier in my life, I would doll up a story to make it more exciting or funnier or something. But I learned along the way, probably with my damn broken neck, that tell the true story. Just tell the true story exactly as it is because an audience can tell if there's a lie. The audience can tell if there's an exaggeration. When I tell you that in Iceland, on top of the volcano, Mount Hetla, I was hit with a windstorm that came off the Atlantic Ocean that lifted me and the horse and the horse I was riding off the ground and carried us for a few yards and dropped us on the ground. I am telling the truth. And I'm not exaggerating and saying it was a Wizard of Oz exaggeration. This is how big the storm was. That's what happened. And that's when the horse took off and threw me onto a lava flow, a, a hardened lava flow. I wasn't thrown into lava. And they found me in a fetal position on the only piece of vegetation, soft vegetation on this hard basaltic plain. People know that I'm telling the truth and I'm not exaggerating. And also, when you tell the truth, you have a chance for the story to continue. For example, the Joan Potter story. Had I lied and tried to make that story different as to what happened in school, I would not have had that meeting with John Tillotson in the lobby of the theater. Uh, He would not have been able to tell me the untold story, which is always more powerful than the story we're willing to tell. So what the Tobolowsky Files has evolved into and what this particular 16 episodes are about are dedicated to telling a lot of the untold stories. People who've heard the Tobolowsky Files are going to know the framework. They're going to know I'm a guy who grew up in Texas, a Jewish one of three Jewish families in Olive Oak Cliff, and we were not observant. We, we celebrated Christmas. That's how Jewish we were. And then I wanted to be an actor, and I went to SMU, and the teacher tried to kick me out of school, and I engaged in a three-year battle of wits with her when they wouldn't cast me in plays in school. I got my equity card and started acting professionally, which really pissed them off. 
And when she tried to fail me from school, I had beaten her because I took my graduate exam a year and a half early without telling anyone because I knew she would do anything to destroy me. And I ended up graduating because I took that test. That the first love of my life was Beth, was a sweet girl from Mississippi, actress, good actress, but she never got cast in anything, was frustrated. And so she decided in graduate school to kind of become a writer. And the first full-length play she wrote won the Pulitzer Prize for drama. So I'm not exaggerating for for a dramatic effect. You can't get more dramatic than what life is itself. And Beth and I lived together for 16 years, and I ended up directing her shows. I ended up doing one of her plays on Broadway. I directed the Miss Firecracker contest in New York. This season in the podcast, in the new podcasts that are coming out, I talk about directing Miss Firecracker in New York and what that experience is. True stories. True. Uh, I'm somebody who, in my life, had a flirtation with cocaine. That was something to fight. Another thing to fight, which I talk about this season, some of the untold stories of what happened with that. Uh, The important thing about the evolution of the podcast was what your compatriot and my compatriot, Alan Sippenwall, said. He now writes for Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. Alan does? Yep. Uh, I hung out with him a little bit when I was in New York. He called, he wrote an article about our podcast, and he called it The Serialized Man. Mm. And I thought, wow, that is what we have done. We have taken what was going to be a gossip column about show business, and it has become a living experiment of a human life taken warts and all, good, bad, whatever, first loves, first heartbreaks, enormous successes, crushing defeats. And if you tell those stories truthfully, people will respond just from <laughs> just from the first podcast we released the untold story i have yes, got the first episode of the new season yes yes episode what is it 84 or something yeah. yep yep i have gotten so many emails what do you think about david out of that story the untold story what do you think i have gotten dozens of emails about uh the ending i don't know you tell me not the ending. I would. I did see. That... I did see a bunch of feedback about the ending, though. Yes, they like that one. Cinnamon cinnamon rolls. Mm. I got one from uh, Rich Kimball, who who does a radio talk show in Maine. A very very good talk show that I've done a few times. And Rich wrote back and he said, "I listened to Untold Story, and I was in tears, Stephen. And I'm thinking it's going to be about the end, right? No." He says, because cinnamon rolls is what my mother used in our house, and that was our ritual. And suddenly, this specificity of nothing, of Pillsbury cinnamon rolls, brought, and and it became his story. If you tell a true story, people hear the truth in it, and it becomes your story. So what 
why there are so damn many episodes is that I found that the more I write, the more it begins to uncover kind of the essence of a life. In, in the last series of stories we did, we have one called What is Hidden, which is one of my favorite stories, uh, that Aristotle said that to know anything, you have to know two things about that thing. You have to know what is seen, and you have to know what is hidden. He said those two combined create what we call the essence of a thing. And quite often, we see what is seen. We, we see me getting written out at the Mindy show, but we don't see what is hidden. Mindy hugging me at the end of my reprise three, four years later and whispering to me, I wouldn't have done this. Right. And kind of like acknowledging your humanity in a way. That's kind of how I interpret that story. Yes. She, un- she was acknowledging the hurt that I must right. have felt in doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, people should ch- go check out the podcast, obviously, at TobolowskiFiles.com. We also have a YouTube version of the stories at YouTube.com slash Tobofiles. Um, but Stephen, I want to I close by asking you about um, the pandemic and how it's impacted you. Now, I, I have now known Stephen for 11 years, and boy, we've been on remarkable journeys together, Stephen. Um, now both we have. In, both in our lives and in terms of our friendship together. But I think that like when I first knew you, um, I, me and my film aficionado friends and colleagues – I will say uh, we all had great respect and affection for you, right? Um, and that you were very well regarded in, in the film community. Um, but you were at the time, I'll just be like brutally honest, you know, a fairly, <laughs> a fairly niche dude. Like it, you, your, your name wasn't widely known. Like people would maybe, maybe vaguely recognize you if they saw you in the Gelsons, right? But like at the time, you were kind of a character actor who had appeared in everything, but like people didn't really know your name and they maybe maybe could vaguely recognize you and they got you confused with Wallace Shawn a lot. Like that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of what it was like when I first met you. In the time since then, um, you have appeared in so many more high profile things, specifically thinking of Silicon Valley, specifically yeah. thinking one day at a time, specifically thinking of the Goldbergs, that has just uh, dramatically increased your international profile. You know, like people, like I, I've been to restaurants with you. You are recognized everywhere we go now, and and so I was very, very happy about all this. You know, because I'm like, yay, Stephen's finally getting the recognition he deserves. And then COVID happened, and you know, Hollywood shut down for several months. Now things are starting to pick back up. I wonder if you can tell us about your experience of the pandemic, um, some of the fears you've had, some of the successes you've had during this time. Well, the biggest thing that I've, I've been talking about to Anne in our coffee and cats moment in the morning, one of the hardest things about COVID is before I used to do things I was good at. Uh, I was either good at acting, I was pretty good at writing, and 
certainly with COVID, I could still write. But with acting being taken away, I'm stuck all day doing things I'm not that good at. Mm-hmm. I, I uh, Shopping at 6.30 in the morning at senior hours so I don't get the virus and die. Cleaning rabbit cages constantly. Uh, washing washing dishes, helping Ann cook. We, we do all of our meals at home and practicing the piano. I, well, you're I, good at, you're good at that, Stephen. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm good for somebody who's not good at it, but for somebody who's really good at the piano, I'm not good at the piano, but, but I mean, I could sit down, I could play Beethoven, a difficult piece of Beethoven and make a lot of mistakes, but it'll still, there'll be chunks of it that'll sound okay. First thing about COVID is it made me realize what social creatures we are. I mean, before we always know oh, people are social creatures, but no, we are more social creatures than we th- thought. We think, we feel, we know by what we see and what we interact with. And when you can't interact with the world, with anybody else, you begin to only interact with yourself and your cats and your coffee and your wife and and there is no way no way to reach out of that shell and it becomes very very difficult very depressing uh that's one always i've said david that the podcast has been a real lifeline for me at first writing those podcasts in healing then when i had my open heart surgery the podcast became a lifeline to me thinking I will have a legacy in that I've written some of these stories and people will know something about me. That and Groundhog Day. I have found several weaknesses that people have with with the pandemic that are universal. Our memories erode. That's one thing that happens. It's very difficult to complete tasks. Uh, There is a sameness to everything that is mind-numbing and ultimately depressing. And what I heard one shrink tell me is depression is just anger turned in on yourself. That's what they told me. Uh, I keep, consequently, I try to find ways to, one, do things I'm good at, to do what I can to help Anne around the house. She does so much here. And to try to find a way to reach out in a world that doesn't allow you to reach out. The only very few ways you can do that, one way you could do that is intellectually, by reading and taking up new ideas and and exploring those ideas. In the podcast this year, one of the ideas that I took and ran with was Carl Jung. I ended up reading a couple Carl Jung books, so now I'm an expert on Carl Jung. And But I took a couple of ideas of his that absolutely floored me. And I've been thinking about them for months now and taking those on the paths that they'll take. And it is important to stay physically healthy during the pandemic. So we work out. My wife and I, we work out three times a day. I'm going to work out today, as a matter of fact. Uh, we have a trainer on, on the phone, uh, on the FaceTime, 
who who says, okay, there you are, I see you. And and we do our <laughs> exercises with him in his room and, and us in our room. And well, we, Stephen, yeah. Stephen uh, uh, there was a time when you felt like this was an existential threat to your livelihood. Yes, right? definitely, like, definitely. You were like, there was a, a few months ago, I talked to you, you, you said, I don't know if I'm ever going to work again. Yeah. Right? Um, because there was, and still is a possibility, like productions will just say, uh, people as old as Steven, not worth the risk. Not worth the risk, right? Yeah. Because they are in a uh, particularly vulnerable uh, cohort, uh, vulnerable to the coronavirus. Uh, and that said, you just started working on, you just did a shoot for the Goldbergs recently. Everyone was tested, obviously, and uh, things seem like they're okay, but how do you feel today about your future prospects as an actor in Hollywood, given everything that's happening? Considering your first question, like, when did you feel you had arrived? <laughs> I feel the same way now. I went back in the Wayback Machine to a not-so-good time when I was getting my first jobs in Los Angeles. And the thrill of having the job and the greatness of being on the set and doing it in the instant that job is over, you go like, that's it for me. That's probably it for me. And that's exactly how I felt during this pandemic. I was so high when I got, and I mean that in a good way, I was so high when I got the Goldbergs job, when they said that you're actually in this script and jumping through the, this new one, the most recent one, the most right. recent that we did this yeah. last week, R going down to Sony and get my COVID test at six thirty in the morning, showing up at, at seven o'clock the next morning to shoot Goldberg's, and as soon as I left the st stage at noon, af after having shot our stuff, I'm going like, "Oh yeah, it's terrific. Oh, it's over." And then you're back into the COVID void. I did uh, a couple voiceovers for Nickelodeon, which I love to do. I love Nickelodeon and I love the shows they do there. And they did one of the things where they take over my computer here at home and set my computer up as a soundstage where they could control me and watch me from the Nickelodeon set and wherever they were and direct me uh, doing a couple of loud houses. And it was wonderful working with those people. Again, I think the women who work on that Loud House, oh my God, are they geniuses. They're so good, great, great vocal actors. And then as soon as I finished, I went, yes, and it's done. And again, I'm facing now the existential wall of, will this ever happen again? Will theater ever happen again? I don't know. So- Yes, I'm back in the Wayback Machine, David. I'm back in the 1970s, late 1970s, wondering if there will be another job. Stephen Tobolowski is an actor who has appeared in over 200 TV shows and films. Uh, he can most recently be seen in One Day at a Time, as well as The Goldbergs. You can also listen to him on the podcast that I host with him, The Tobolowski Files. Stephen Tobolowsky, thanks for joining me today on Culturally Relevant. Thank you very much, David Chen. Appreciate it.
Welcome to Weekly Recommendations. This is a part of the show each week where I recommend something I've been reading, listening to, watching, etc. This week I want to recommend something weird. Uh, I want to recommend an Ask Me Anything interview that I did with Stephen on Reddit. Uh, I'll link to it in the show notes, but Stephen and I hopped on our movies this week, and I kind of helped him transcribe a lot of his answers, put them onto Reddit. And some of his answers were really interesting, particularly what he had to say about working on Mr. Magoo, the movie. Uh, just hilarious answer. Uh, I'll link to the interview in the show notes, but just some great, great answers and uh, a great time was had by all. Um, I also asked Stephen what his weekly recommendation was. Here's what he had to say. A couple things. I, I saw uh, a Monster Calls, terrifying subject matter of a young boy whose young mother is dying of cancer. Uh, Sigourney, dear Sigourney, plays the grandmother. I cannot believe that at this point in time. But it is this kid, this kid, it's an English film, this kid gives a performance like Haley Joel Osment in The Sixth Sense. Mm. I mean, it is a performance that'll turn your head around, a monster calls, and it is heartbreaking and it is beautiful. And then I just yesterday watched Chicago twice in a row. The movie? The movie. I've seen so many musicals and so many musicals uh, turned into films, but the choreography for film, I've never seen it so successfully done where choreography for stage was translated to film. It is magnificent. So if you have not seen the movie, Chicago, it's a good sit and uh, great performances, great music, but watch that choreography. It will pin you to the chair. It'll make you stand up and scream. It's amazing. So those things in particular, and of course, read Carl Jung. Carl Jung, <laughs> if you got some free time, Carl Jung says, if I remember correctly, the, mis the mysterious does not speak to us mysteriously. It speaks to us in plain, simple language, but in clues and riddles and dreams. Mm -hmm.